Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. If you have not been with us, this is your first time. We're in a series through uh, the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament, so that's where we're going to be. But before we jump into today's text, uh, I want to talk for a second about a word and a practice that my guess is a lot of us are not familiar with, at least the word. Uh, I want to talk about the practice of hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. All right, so uh, I love that word. I like the way that it sounds. It's got a very satisfying way that it comes off the tongue. Uh, The word hermeneutics is an important one. And uh, if you, just so I have a sense of where we're at, raise your hand. There's no shame in this whatsoever. Raise your hand if you're not super familiar with that word and like gun to your head probably could not define it. So most of us, right? Megan, born, you can define hermeneutics? You can? Okay, I figured, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you get for being on your phone. So uh, I I understand that we don't all know that word. Uh, It probably didn't come up over breakfast this morning. Uh, But hermeneutics really has to do with the tools that we employ in order to interpret the Bible. So there's a scholar by the name of A.B. Mickelson, and he defines hermeneutics like this. He says it's the task of finding out the meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers or readers, and thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern ears. So so notice that faithful hermeneutics has in it uh, two aims. Number one, uh, the first aim is that we would understand what the author intended to say to to their original audience. And then number two, we want to understand how that applies to us today. And the reason it's important for us to have our heads around that is until we understand the first, we can't really understand the second. And by that I mean we will never understand what a text means until we understand what it meant. We will never understand what a text means until we understand what it meant. And so we do the Bible and ourselves this massive injustice when we abdicate the work of understanding the intent of the author in their own time, in their own culture, and in their own context. And instead, we just sort of import all of our own definition and all of our own application into the scriptures. And the reason that that's so dangerous is that best case scenario, we run the very real risk of completely missing the intended message. And worst case scenario, we risk putting words in God's mouth that he never said. And so let me give you a very real example that we touched on again last week. It was a failure to understand all of the historical context to really do the work of hermeneutics that resulted in the sinful oppression of slaves in the history of our own country. Because the critical hermeneutical work was not done or it was ignored, texts like 1 Peter 2.18 that we studied last week were used to justify the institute of slavery and to abuse slaves. And so before you check out on this, thinking that this practice of hermeneutics sounds like it's more just the work for seminarians and scholars, understand it is critically important to you and I. We will never understand what a text means until we do this work to understand what it meant. And so why bring this up today? 
I bring it up because as we continue our study through 1 Peter this morning, we come to a text that has also been misinterpreted and has also been misapplied, resulting again in abuse and oppression. This time in the lives of women in the context of marriage. And so as a result, this text has become highly controversial in modern marriage. But I would argue and will today, and I hope will convince you, that it's not actually due to what the text means. The controversy is due to our misunderstanding of what it actually says. And so here's what I want to do. I want to call them, we, we've, we have hit some controversial things through this series, I know, and uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Hopefully we all feel a little uncomfortable or I feel like I'm not doing my job. And so there's been a lot of controversy, I know. So here's what I want to call the message this morning. I want to call it two totally non-controversial common sense keys to a healthy marriage. It's catchy, right? I'll give you a second to write that down, okay? So we're going to call this two totally non-controversial common sense keys to a healthy marriage. And as we read the text this morning, that's going to sound like I think maybe you mistitled the message. But stay with me. I'm going to show you that this is in fact true. If you haven't yet, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at the first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible this morning, all the scripture is going to be on screen. But we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Two totally non-controversial common sense keys to a healthy marriage. Here is number one. Wives must respect their husbands. Wives must respect their husbands. Let me read these first six verses and then we'll pull them apart a bit. In the same way, wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. See, nothing controversial, just as I promised. All right, so listen. We're going to unpack this a bit, and I want to make three observations uh, about these verses. The first one is this. Peter here is chiefly concerned with preserving Christian witness. Peter's primary concern in these verses is preserving Christian witness. If you look back at verse 1, notice again that Peter starts by saying, in the same way. Now remember, this is not the first time that we have seen this phrase. And it reminds us that what Peter says next is attached to something that he has already said. An intent that he's already covered. And so if you're not familiar with uh, 1 Peter and you've not been here for our study, in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter writes to this entire church and this is what he says. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and then will glorify God the day he visits. So these... These early Christians were living in a time when they were starting to experience uh, increasing degrees of persecution, specifically in the form of social rejection and isolation. And so Peter wants to make sure that they never suffer unnecessarily and that they would maintain their witness to the person and power of Jesus. Everything that he is saying in this section hangs under chapter 2 verse 12. 
So in some cultures, still, Christians suffer simply because they choose to walk with Jesus. But as we've talked about throughout this series, sometimes we can suffer for living in a foolish manner that flaunts our faith in a way that results in unnecessary suffering. And furthermore, that damages our witness to Jesus in this world. And so Peter is saying, man, don't do that. Conduct yourselves honorably. And then he goes on to roll out what that looked like with governing authorities, with household slaves and masters like we talked about last week. And now he does the same thing for both husbands and wives. So Peter's specific intent here is not primarily to help husbands and wives have the most magical marriages imaginable. His intent is to help them know how to live as husbands and wives in a way that others would be able to observe as countercultural and then win outsiders to God. Peter is chiefly concerned with preserving Christian wit- witness, which leads us to observation number two. Peter primarily has in mind here wives who are living in interfaith marriages. Peter primarily has in mind wives living in interfaith marriages. Look at verse one and two again. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, so this is the way that Peter talks about a husband not being a follower of Jesus, even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. So Peter here directs his instruction to women who had come to faith in Jesus but um, were married to men who had not. And there is so much in these first two verses about what Peter writes that completely subverts what was normative in his own culture. So for one thing, it would have been highly controversial that Peter instructed women at all. Women in this culture in the first century, they had virtually no rights. Socially, they did not exist apart from their husbands if they were married. If they were not married, they did not exist apart from their fathers. So women had no rights, and that's what he writes into. And so as they would have been gathered together in whatever form their early worship service took, and someone stood up to read this letter out loud that Peter had written, and they read the words, in the same way wives, you would have heard like the record scratch as this awkward uncertainty settled on the room because women were not typically addressed as with equal honor uh, as men. And so the very fact that he writes what he does to them at all is controversial for him. Secondly, it was also very countercultural that Peter instructs wives on how to follow Jesus when their husbands didn't. Because in this culture, it was customary for wives to adopt the faith of their husbands without any comment on it, without any complaint about it. It was just, if that's what he did, that's what you did. But Peter does not tell them to do that. He wants to help them understand how to walk with Jesus regardless of their husband's faith and hopefully in a way that would draw him to Jesus as well. And all of this begins to shed light on the word that is the elephant in the church so much of the time, the word submit. Now this word is very hard on modern ears because we hear it and we tend to think the forfeiting of rights. We think about maybe the inability to think for oneself or a responsibility to blindly obey. And further complicating the issue is the fact that this word has been taught like that and it very much has been used to oppress and to abuse women and that is a problem. And so let me just say, if you fear or you feel any of that, or if some version of that has been pressed upon you, I want you to know none of that, 
is bound up in what Peter is saying here. Peter is simply calling Christian wives who are married to non-Christian husbands to still be respectful to them and to still be responsive to their needs as husbands. He's saying, don't flaunt your freedom in Christ in a way that disrespects your husband and would in fact push him farther away from Jesus. Instead, just simply respect him. Live a pure life, meaning be committed to him alone and let him observe your reverential fear of God. And that leads us to observation number three, which is this. Peter provides specific application for a specific culture. Peter provides specific application for a specific culture. Look at verse three. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now again, this is where historical context is so critical. And this work of hermeneutics that we talked about is so critical. Because Peter is not saying that bodily care is sin. He isn't saying that it is wrong for you to do your hair. Thank God. He's not saying that it is wrong for you to enjoy fashion or to wear earrings. He's writing to a particular cultural situation. Now, remember how I said that wives socially really did not exist apart from their husbands. Well, because of that, it was highly uncommon that women would have virtually any interaction outside of their homes apart from their husbands. They would be together in that. So the very idea that a Christian woman would leave her home by herself for Christian worship, unaccompanied by her husband in that culture, provided obvious opportunity for criticism. It appeared that she was being potentially promiscuous in her culture. And so this instruction that he provides here to not outwardly adorn oneself was not because it is sinful to get your hair done and to like rock a fly outfit, okay? That's not what he's saying. It was specific to not doing anything that would provide an opportunity for a wife to be accused that her Christian faith gave her the freedom to disrespect her marriage vows and to be promiscuous. So if you remember back to the week where we talked about submitting to governing authorities, remember what Peter was protecting there. He did not want Christians throwing off all amount of government oversight and leadership in their lives and then blame it on their faith. Well, I'm free in Christ, so I don't have to listen to the emperor. Or I'm free in Christ, so I don't have to respect the president. I can spout off at the mouth and say and do whatever I want. He's correcting that kind of behavior. And then now in marriage, in the same way, he's saying to wives who are married to non-Christian husbands, hey, don't, don't use your freedom in Christ as an excuse to carry yourself in a way that is going to appear both to your husband and to your culture as promiscuous. So that's what he's trying to correct here. So he tells them, instead of being solely preoccupied with outward appearance, Peter encourages them to focus on the inner work that God defines as deepest beauty, namely, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, this does not mean that a wife is to silently go along with everything that her husband says. This is a call to cultivate the same Jesus-like meekness attributed to him in Matthew 11.29 and Matthew 21.5. This is the exact, these words are the same ones used to describe the character and nature of Jesus in those two texts. 
And so that's what we're to do as well. So while our cultures and our applications are going to be very different, there is an important reminder in here, I would argue, for all of us. And that reminder is that God's values differ from the virtues of the world on the regular. God's values differ from the virtues of our world. And so, ladies, you certainly don't need me or anyone else to tell you how disproportionately the world cares about physical appearance. Far more than men, you are bombarded from the youngest age with the message that your physical appearance is the most important thing about you. And so my prayer this morning is that you would allow the word of God to free you from that lie. Who you are becoming is far more important to God than your outward appearance. Who you're becoming is way more important than your outward appearance. So, both men and women should steward our health and take a shower. Amen? Like, we, can we agree to that? I get to do chapel at my kids' school. Every once in a while, I'm going to teach this text because they need to shower more on the regular at the junior high age. It's a real smelly gym. Uh, and so, we just, we, we can do that for sure. But... We should never neglect our inner lives in the name of obsessing over outward appearance. So what this is really about is priority. And so it isn't wrong to enjoy fashion. It isn't wrong to look nice. It isn't wrong to take care of yourself. But when we do that to the exclusion of the inner work that matters more to God, our priorities are out of alignment. And I'm telling you, male, female, doesn't matter. We're all guilty of this. Because here's what I was thinking about this this morning. My guess is, like, raise your hand. And Megan, get ready, okay? Because we're going to all raise our hand this time. And uh, this is Megan's last week at our church. If you guys all want to say goodbye to her, thank her for coming. She moved here too, believe it or not, to be a part of this. So, so listen, um, uh, raise your hand if you have ever had to miss a time of sitting with God in the morning because you just didn't have time before you got into your day. Raise your hand if you've ever missed that before. Okay, so let the record show that's everyone this time. Uh, <laughs> so listen, my guess is, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you'd ever been uh, late, running maybe late in the morning, but because of that, you, you chose to sit with God, but you chose to neglect taking a shower, getting dressed, doing your makeup, doing your hair, if you have some, and, and, uh, and you, you neglected all that because you're like, you know what? I got I to gotta sit with God today. I got to continue to do this inner work. And so I guess I'm going to work in my onesie. That's just how it's going to go down today. My guess is no one's ever done that. And that's because of the way that our priorities work. I'm not encouraging you to go to work in your onesie because you will get fired. But I'm just saying our priorities in general regularly are out of alignment with what God wants. And so that is the end toward which Peter is working here. And so that goes right into this example. Peter lifts up the Old Testament matriarch Sarah as an example of having our priorities in the right order. So look with me at verse 5. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation." So he's using Sarah as an example, and her hope in God freed her, even though the, the scriptures tell us that she was beautiful on a couple of different occasions. But her hope in God freed her from the need to obsess over outward appearance to the neglect of developing this practice of, of gentle meekness in relationship to her husband Abraham. 
Now, there is an obvious thing in this, these verses that will probably trip us up. And so let's talk about it. When Peter says, Sarah obeyed Abraham. <laughs> oh man, I remember I read that the first time. I was like, whew, I should not have chosen First Peter. I should have chosen a different book. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now in verse 6, when he says that, he is using a cultural example. So let me just go on the record as saying that wives are not called to obey their husbands the way that children are called to obey parents. Sarah, obeying Abraham, calling him Lord, was a display of respect in their culture. You calling your husband Lord in our culture is just uncomfortable for everyone. Amen? <laughs> so don't do that, husbands. Don't go home today and be like, well, you heard the pastor. <laughs> supposed to call me Lord from here on out. I did not say that, dummy, all right? I did not say that. Uh, many of you know uh, my biological dad left when I was three. And so my mom remarried when I was five. And because my biological dad was totally out of the picture, he adopted my brother and I. And when he adopted us, we got like a whole another side of family there, which was awesome. And, uh, and that meant I got uh, a new set of grandparents as well. And because my mom's dad had already passed away, meeting my dad's parents was actually the first time that I interacted with married grandparents from a different generation. And they passed away uh, quite a while ago, but I just recall them being very sweet and very kind to me. They lived next to this farm. And so as a little boy, we got to like run around and play with these animals and it was amazing. Uh, but there was one thing about my new grandparents that from the very beginning, severely weirded me out. And, and so like every couple I've ever met, usually all couples have like some kind of pet name for one another, right? So like in addition to your first name, like sweetheart, babe, hottie with a naughty body, whatever your thing is. <laughs> That's what Tammy calls me. You can use it if you want, but you got to keep up this middle-aged balding dad body, okay? So everybody has, uh, has, has like some kind of pet name. <clears throat> so I remember the very first time I met my new grandparents, they referred to one another as mother and father. That was my response too. So my grandmother would be like, Father, uh, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? And I remember being six years old going, mm, I, I do not like that. <laughs> that makes me feel weird in all kinds of ways. I just don't like that. And so when Sarah called Abraham Lord, in all joking aside, it's like that. It was a cultural display of respect that simply reads in a severely outdated way to you and I. And that's okay, because Peter is providing a specific application for a specific culture. What remains for wives in our own culture are these two principles, all right? Number one, prioritize what God calls beautiful over what the world does. Prioritize what God calls beautiful over what the world does. Don't obsess over outward beauty to the neglect of the inner work that is becoming like Jesus. That is your most important, most beautiful, and highest calling. Number two, think, behave, and speak in a respectful manner toward your husband. Think, behave, and speak in a respectful manner toward your husband. That's what Peter is calling you to, and I hope, like, can we agree that should not be controversial? I mean, we're talking like this is like basic human dignity stuff. The problem is we live in a world that often praises and sees no problem with dismissive and disrespectful speech and behavior. 
But as followers of Jesus, we live for a different king and a different kingdom. Amen? So wives, respect your husbands, not because he's always respectable. Not because he is superior and you are inferior. Relate respectfully out of reverence to God who is always worthy of our obedience. All right, so that's number one. Here is the second totally non-controversial common sense key to a healthy marriage. Number two is this. Husbands must honor their wives. Husbands must honor their wives. Listen to verse seven. Husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So I want you to notice, guys, that Peter opens our verse with the same words, right? He says, in the same way. And so this repeated phrase level sets this command to husbands, And this should send a very clear message that Peter does not, in fact, see husbands as better than or more important than wives. Men are in no way better than or more important than women. Furthermore, I want you to notice that Peter gives both a practical command and a humbling motive for it. So first, let's talk about this practical command. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. Now, that weaker partner thing... All that that means is that more often than not, I don't, again, I don't think this is controversial if we think about it, more often than not, a husband tends, not always, but tends to be physically stronger than his wife, okay? More often than not, that does tend to be the case. The CrossFit games are going on this weekend. I've been watching those. I'm telling you right now, if I was put in a position to fight one of these CrossFit women in a dark alley, I would lay down and hope she thought I was dead because I would not fight them. But most of the time, that's not the case. By and large, men tend to be stronger than what their wives are physically. And so that's what Peter's referring to. And his point is that they should never, ever use that to intimidate or to get their way. So this is an almost explicit condemnation of any type of physical abuse whatsoever. Getting big, getting loud, trying to be intimidating and using your size and your strength to get what you want is not okay, to say the least. And that's what Peter is after. So he says, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. Now, I would argue that all the controversy surrounding surrounding Peter's instruction to wives is unnecessary because his command to husbands is virtually exactly the same. Where wives are called to submit to their husbands, meaning to be attentive to and to meet their needs, husbands are also called to live in an honoring manner that is being understanding of their wives' needs. And so this means that husbands are called to be students of the needs of their own wives. And this is very much a reciprocal command then of respect and honor. And this is so important, guys. Because we have far too many cultural pictures of husbands as king of their little kingdom. And so what happens in that model is that the husband becomes the son around which everything in the home, wife included, is meant to orbit. And the problem is there is not one verse in the entire Bible in which the responsibilities of a husband are painted that way. 
Throughout the entire New Testament, husbands are called to be sacrificial students of their wives. And that requires a very deep interest in them. When I was in high school, I was not a great student, so much so that um, I did, in fact, graduate dead last in my class. It's one of my many claims to fame. Um, mind you, I did go to a very small school, so I only graduated with like 17 people. But last is last, and I got to tell you, it didn't feel great to have to carry that around my entire life. And the truth was, uh, the issue was I just, I did not care about school at all. I cared about sports, and I cared about girls. And so school was nothing more than a means to those ends. And my lack of care informed my inattention. And that all changed when I started into my Bible training. All of a sudden, I became painfully attentive. And I worked hard with nobody looking over my shoulder anymore. I cared so much about understanding the Bible that I was fiercely attentive to my studies. And so I read far beyond everything I was responsible for and went from being a C and D student in high school to an almost straight A student in college. And my point is I didn't get smarter, I got interested. My interest informed my attention. Now here's why I bring that up. Guys, I'm, I'm concerned that if we're honest, this is where the battle lies for most husbands. We're not students of our wives because we don't actually care. And that's a problem. Because Peter gives us two very important reasons to care. First, he says our wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. So what that means is, is that our wives are partners we pursue Jesus with. They're not moms meant to take care of us. Amen? I really expected a louder amen, at least from women in the room. And I got almost nothing. Thank you. So I don't see that the Bible very often dictates how life responsibilities are to be divided between husbands and wives. Right? So like sometimes maybe a husband takes the garbage out, sometimes a wife does, sometimes husbands mow the lawn, sometimes wives do. The Bible does not prescribe for us how we break down responsibilities like that. What I do know, guys is that if you traded in your mom, who may have waited on you hand and foot, for your wife, you're dishonoring her. And you are not treating her as a co-heir of the grace of life. And so we should be students of our wives because they are co-heirs of the grace of life. Secondly, Peter says this, this is so sobering. God ignores the prayers of husbands who neglect their wives. This is one of the most sobering warnings to husbands in the entire Bible. God ignores the prayers of husbands who neglect their wives. So Peter says that husbands have to live with their wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. So what that means is ignoring the needs of your wife dams up God's answer to your prayers. So you can spend hours in prayer, but if you're not pouring yourself out, for the needs of your wife, God might as well have his fingers in your ears while you pray. Because before she is ever your wife, she is God's daughter. And Jesus shed blood to make her his own. And so you better cherish her because make no mistake, God does. And so husbands, do you wake up every day committed to honoring your wife by living as a student attentive to her needs? 
and not just her physical needs. There was like a whole generation of men as husbands and dads that had this mindset of, I shouldn't have to tell you I love you. You should just know it. I put food on the table. And I got to tell you, that's like such a low bar. And God's bar for us as men and husbands is significantly higher than that. God calls us to be attentive, not just to physical needs, but also to spiritual needs and emotional needs and relational needs. And if we can't do that, get some therapy. Do what needs to happen to be able to be attentive in the ways that God has called us to to be. And not because our wives are incapable of caring for themselves, but because God has called us to serve him by sacrificing for them. That is our call. So husbands must honor their wives. All right, so after unpacking all that historical context, here's the big idea for us, okay? Healthy marriage demands a deep commitment to mutual displays of respect and honor. And that is not controversial. This is basic human relationship. And apart from this, relationships in general, and marriages in particular, die. Healthy marriage demands a deep commitment to mutual displays of respect and honor. See, the challenge in relationships in general, and marriage in particular, is not that they're like super complicated or confusing. The challenge is how contrary to human nature all of this is. See, we're just often not bent toward showing respect and honor, particularly when we have been disrespected or dishonored. And so what's happening here is that, as is often the case in this letter, Peter is inviting us to trust God's higher and better way for us. And he poses these invitations to us over and over and over and over throughout this letter. He writes to us saying, I know that all of this sounds so counterintuitive to you and so different than what feels natural to you, but will you trust that God's way is higher and better? And so that's the question that he puts in front of us this morning. Will we answer the invitation to trust? Will we choose respect and honor when what we want to do is to cut and control? Will we, regardless of whether we're married or not, regardless of whether we're married to someone who shares our faith or not, and some in our church are married to people who don't share their faith, Will we, regardless of whether or not our spouse makes it easy or not, will we trust, will we trust God, and will we work to build a culture of respect and honor in our relationships? That's the invitation to us, is to trust God to pursue that end. Will you bow your heads? Let me pray for us. Father, as clear as this might be, it it is not easy for us. And and this, this issue in particular, Lord, can be very complicated for us for a great many reasons. Many of us have seen no true model of this in our lives. Some of us might be in relationships where it's very difficult where our, our, our spouse makes it very difficult for us to try to do this. 
And so, Lord, regardless of, of all of that, I just, I thank you, that, first of all, that your Holy Spirit knows all of that and is in all of that with us. But I pray, Lord, that, that regardless of all of that, that your Spirit would lead us to a place of trusting what you have called us to. Lord, we, we need this. We need to have a culture in all of our relationships, but specifically for our purpose this morning, specifically in our marriages, Lord, we need to have a culture of respect and honor. And I pray, God, that you would connect to that, not just the health of our marriages, but the health of our witness in this world. Our world is just riddled with awful marriages and awful relationships. And I pray that you would help us to trust your higher and better way and that you would build in us a different kind of marriage and a different kind of relationship that would scream to a lost world that you have a better way. Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life for your bride, the church, for us, that you shed your blood, that you literally gave everything for us. And I pray that we would follow that example and that we would do the same. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.